Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. Listen to this. One of the primary reasons American colonists decided to declare their independence from Britain was because they wanted to protect the institution of slavery. And this, the founding of the United States of America did not begin with the Declaration of Independence in 1776. Instead, the actual founding of America occurred in 1619, uh, the year 20 or so African slaves were brought to Jamestown, Virginia. I don't believe these statements are true, and I bet you don't either. But these are some of the arguments being made to support the charges of systematic racism in America and critical race theory. So to dig into these statements and why they are not true, and more importantly, what is true, I've asked that Philip Magnus, an economic historian specializing in the 19th century United States history, to join me today. Phil? Senior Research Fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research, Phil's written extensively on the political and economic dimensions of slavery and is the author of the 1619 Project, A Critique. Phil, great to have you here. Happy uh, to be here. So how long have you been working on the, I mean, 1619 came out first a couple of years ago. Yeah. New York Times were all sort of astounded that they would be putting this out there, and but they were quite serious about it. And now this has evolved into what's being taught in schools. Uh, and uh, it's now being part of the critical race theory uh, movement. So give me some context here. Where, where does this come from? Right. So uh, the 1619 Project, when it burst onto the scene of the New York Times uh, magazine, that was August of 2019, uh, it initially struck me as, as something that uh, was actually kind of exciting to read because I'm a uh, historian that primarily works in the area of slavery. Uh, I've written uh, several academic articles and books. I think I've counted over two dozen works on the Civil War era and 19th century uh, slavery and the economic dimensions of it. Um, been working on this for decades, and I saw that they were actually running a feature on, on you know, I get excited on what was supposed to be my area, and then I started reading it, and as I started reading it, it struck me immediately as politicized history uh, that was actually arguing from a, 20, a 21st century perspective of progressive politics and trying to project that onto the past. And I thought this was kind of odd because uh, just a few years before uh, the New York Times ran the 1619 Project, uh, they did a very prominent feature uh, that was on the 150th anniversary of the Civil War called Disunion. And it was uh, very professionally edited, had uh, academic scholars contributed from across the political spectrum, uh, from across the historical fields that work on that. I wrote several pieces for it. Uh, There's a good, vibrant debate, and it met the standards of what I thought was high-quality journalism. And here we were just like five years later, uh, the New York Times was putting out what struck me as almost political propaganda to, uh, to make an argument for why 21st century politics should be the interpretive lens that we use for the entire past of the United States. And really, first and foremost, they seem to be uh, making an argument to discredit 
two major institutions that are responsible for our wealth, our prosperity, our success as a nation, and that is free market capitalism and the United States Constitution. Uh, so it seemed like a, uh, an almost all-out assault on uh, these dimensions of American life from this perspective of that they needed to be overturned or toppled or critiqued uh, on the grounds that they were connected to slavery and they were irreparably tainted by slavery. Was Howard Zinn a source for this? Uh, I don't believe he was directly. Uh, I mean, he's dead. He's yeah. been dead for a long time. I mean, his, his book, History of the American People, is being taught in all the right, schools right. now. And the basic premise is America is, was, and will be a terrible place, and the world be, would be better without us. Yeah, so it's a, that's kind of the, the, the thinking that went into some of this. Uh, I think there's a, a milieu of the, uh, the historical profession that was, um, was captured there, and not directly Zen, but the, uh, I'd say the biggest source that Nicole Hannah-Jones and some of the other writers for that. She was the principal author, exactly. the, the so editor she, of it. She's the, uh, the person that wrote the lead essay. Okay. Yeah. And there were really two essays out of the uh, dozen or so that uh, contributed that were, uh, I thought were particularly egregious. Uh, the rest, you know, they, they delved into civil rights history, literature, had interesting conversations. But her lead essay and then a second essay by Matthew Desmond, who's a uh, sociologist at Princeton, uh, she tackled the American founding, Desmond tackled American capitalism, and uh, the, the big argument of both of them is that they're tainted by slavery. Well, the, also in there, didn't, didn't one of the authors make a point that in the, just before the Civil War, uh, no, I guess it's 1836, 600 million of American GDP, almost half of GDP, was directly related to uh, cotton which, of course, involved a, a million slaves. So, so they, they, they set the big lie up that half of the economy yeah. was based on slave labor, and then they take it from there. And, and I think we're going to talk about how they think that you know, slavery has <laughs> right. infused capitalism ever since. So what was the actual number? What was, what, what well, was the economy in 18, 1836? Yeah, so a good Because you're going to set the record straight here. Yeah, this exactly. is a, chance, a real historian with real history. Yeah, uh, so, so a good reputable economic assessment of the percentage of GDP, so total output for the economy in a given year, in say the 1830s is probably about five or six percent is connected to plantation-produced cotton slavery. So it's a very small number. What uh, several of the authors that uh, that go into the 1619 project is a much bigger literature than just this. So this is kind of like the uh, the journalistic face of a movement in the history profession. But there was a guy by the name of Ed Baptist that yeah. in 2014, he wrote a book called The Half Has Never Been Told. Uh, you, you can tell just from the title, he's obsessed with his own novelty. His claim was that uh, the true story of slavery had never been presented. Slavery's connection to capitalism had never been presented before, and he was there to tell it. And what he did is he, uh, he basically misread the evidence. Uh, I mean, this is borderline academic incompetence. Uh, it even goes so far as to he say... He misread or he deliberately distorted? Uh, I, a, as I read what you wrote, right. he deliberately distorted. Right. So what he does is he invents his own new way of calculating GDP. You know, this is... Uh, so I spent a decade teaching economics in the university system. This is something we covered in Macroeconomics 101. How do you calculate GDP? So any undergraduate freshman that's, that's supposed, taken that's that course. supposed to be the first semester. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Like in the first month. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, this is basic stuff. And here, here's this guy that styles himself as a historian of capitalism, and he doesn't know how GDP is calculated. So what he does is he adds up 
all the different components of the economy that are uh, either even tangentially connected to slavery. Uh, so it's not just uh, the value of the cotton that's produced, it's the intermediate steps of shipping the cotton to the, uh, the warehouse, shipping it from the warehouse to the, uh, uh, the textile mill. Uh, it's the financial firms that are marketing it. It's the railroads that uh, even just touch upon carrying cotton. So as I remember, GDP is calculated as the final good, exactly. goods and services and not all the stuff you buy in between. Exactly. He added up all the stuff you buy in between and came up with a very big number. Right. <laughs> so that's the whole thing. GDP, by definition, is only the final good. And the idea is that the selling price at the market incorporates all those steps that have been taken. So the, so the central argument, you'll people hear, well, slavery was, 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 the, was the source for modern capitalism. And it was half the economy. It's just flat wrong. It's flat out wrong. And yet this claim has taken off by like wildfire. So, well, we're going to refute all these claims. Yep. <laughs> the, the other related thing is that the cotton planters themselves in the South uh, have common cause with, with Ed Baptist and that they hated capitalism. They're making common cause with the revisionists today and that uh, they've, they've brought back the idea of King Cotton. Yeah. And that one of the reasons the South claimed that you couldn't do anything with what they were doing is they're responsible for King Cotton, and cotton was the uh, source of true wealth in America. Right. So this was a famous claim that was made on the eve of the Civil War. Uh, there were several um, prominent Southerners that, that, that bought into what was called King Cotton ideology. And the most famous iteration of it, one of the, uh, the senator from South Carolina stood on the floor of, uh, of Congress and announced, Cotton is king, and Cotton waves his scepter over the entire world economy. If you make war upon Cotton... Uh, the entire economic order of the world will collapse. And this was just before the Civil this War. This was right before the Civil War. And, and they actually believed it because the Confederacy during the Civil War structures its entire diplomatic approach to trying to get recognition out of Europe of uh, using cotton as both the carrot and the stick to, uh, to try and bring Britain and France into the war on the southern side. And they think that, aha, we have a trump card here. This is such an important crop. If we, uh, if we use it as the lure to bring them in, they have no choice but to respond or else their textile industries collapse. So they were trying to hold, a, hold us up. Exactly. If you declare war on us, uh, the, all of Europe's going to come in on our side because they depend on our cotton. That is exactly it. So what happened? So what happened? Britain and France look to other countries to get their <laughs> cotton from. It's a world market. Turns out there's a world market. <laughs> so this was this was bogus. So it's, it's a catastrophic diplomatic failure by the Confederacy. It turned out that their economic theory, the, the entire basis that they organized the Southern economy around, was based on a fallacy. It was based on an error. And yet this was prominent before the Civil War, and you can read all the Southern pro-slavery pamphlets. They think that cotton is king. It's such a centerpiece of the American and world economy that if you do anything to disrupt it, you're going to cause chaos, you're going to cause a global depression, uh, and you're going to induce anyone that's interested in that industry to come to the help of the people that produce the cottons, i.e. the plantation owners. And it didn't happen. It didn't play out that way. So the Civil War itself is a refutation of this economic theory. Well, and, and there's something else you write about, which is where to, to, these are the modern authors making the claims that they want to make about the evils of slavery, and evil, evil it certainly was. But the cotton production became a lot more productive 
yeah. in the 50 years before the Civil War. I think it went up almost 400%. Right, right. So for any given acre, you're getting four times as much cotton as you were in 18, 1858 as you were maybe in 1820. Is, yeah. that, is that about the right math? That's yeah, roughly. So it's a, over the course of about half a century. And what's going on there? And what yeah. they claimed was that the plantation overlords had become, what did, what did you, how did you write this here? They'd become more efficient in what? And basically extracting labor out of slaves by beating them. Whipping and, and yeah, other, whipping, other whipping and torture. They, mm -hmm. they, the whipping machine became four times more efficient. That's the claim. And this is the major thesis of the book by Ed Baptist, the same guy that makes the GDP error. And he is the major source of Matthew Desmond's essay in the 1619 Project. So it's important to point out that Ed Baptist, is, his ideas became pervasive. Everybody locked on to it. Yeah. And so that's sort of a conventional wisdom among people on that side of the that side of the argument is just flat wrong. Right. right. So what, what, what was the increase in productivity due to? Yeah. So Ed Baptist gets this number, the 400% growth, out of a study by two economic historians, uh, Paul Rode and Alan Olmsted. This was published a little over a decade ago. And what they did is they, they traced the origins of the boom of the American cotton industry. And, you know, Olmsted and Rode are, are very serious scholars. They, they certainly recognize the horror of slavery, but their investigation found a very different cause than what Baptist had claimed here. They found that the, the, the improvements in the seed technology of cotton, improvements in cultivation, were the real reason why the cotton crop yielded more. It's, it's basically farmers experimented with uh, blending strains of cotton together, and they got more of a yield out of their product. They were cross-breeding, cross I guess they Absolutely. Call it. And Make they it more disease-resistant, easier to, uh, to cultivate. Uh, and yes, it's under a horrible system of slavery that this is taking place, but it's a clear, unambiguous technological growth. And what Ed, Ed Baptist did is he read their numbers, he got their statistic, and he misrepresented all of the reasons that they had documented in this study, uh, even to the point of supplanting them with his own reasons. Uh, so he basically ignored the explanation, used the statistic, and came up with this alternative, basically made up out of thin air, claim that it's actually a, uh, it's improvements in the whipping system that caused the growth in cotton. And it became so pronounced that after Ed Baptist's book came out, the authors of the study, Olmsted and, and Rode, wrote a rebuttal to him and said, hey, wait a minute, you're misrepresenting our work. You're misusing our statistics. This is wrong. Here's the evidence. And Baptist just basically blew them off and ignored them. Well, is he part of the new history of capitalism group? He, he is the central figure, one of the probably two or three major figures of the new history of capitalism. I've, I've learned all this in the last, since I, you and I talked. The new history of capitalism group, who are they and what are, what are, they, what are they about? Yeah, so this is a new history of capitalism is a self-designated moniker for a group of historians that popped up, uh, I'd say in the late 2000s, early 2010s. And what they did is they purported to reinvestigate commonly known events of history through the lens of capitalism, through the lens of economics. And it, it's a very uh, uh, kind of head-in-the-clouds fluffy definition that they use. They actually even avoid defining the term capitalism. And in practice, it becomes stuff that I don't like. And they're all the progressive left. So capitalism is anything from the past that has some economic dimension to it that they don't like. You're watching the Bill Walton Show, and I'm here with Phil Magnus, and we're getting into the, the fact that a lot of history from the left is, is basically stuff they don't like. 
<laughs> we're going to get into get into more of what's real and what isn't real. So continue. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, what was basically happening with the new history of capitalism is they, uh, they of course, focus on slavery. It's the dominant uh, theme of 19th century uh, economic life and political life and, uh, and basically everything that happened before the Civil War. So they focus in on slavery, and what they try to do is reinvent it as a capitalistic institution. And this is where, where you know, the old King Cotton thesis comes out. I, I would go so far as to say the new history of capitalism is an unintentional rehabilitation of the King Cotton thesis minus the Southern enthusiasm for slavery. Well, and the Southerners hated capitalism. That's the fascinating I mean, You write about a guy, uh, George Fitzhugh, who wrote Sociology for the South in 1854. Yeah. yeah. So George Fitzhugh is probably the preeminent late antebellum theorist of slavery in the United States. This is a guy that had a national audience. Uh, he, he debated famous abolitionists. He was seen as kind of like the other side's equivalent of what William Lloyd Garrison or Frederick Douglass would be, mm -hmm. uh, more familiar today. He was the pro-slavery guy that argued against them and uh, like wrote magazine articles, two major books defending this thesis. Fitzhugh is also an avowed anti-capitalist. He is so anti-capitalist that the opening chapter of his book, the first book, uh, A Sociology for the South, which is this pro-slavery screed, doesn't start on slavery. It says, it starts with an attack on free trade and free economics on, on laissez-faire theory. I, I have your quote here. Slavery's greatest threat came from the free market economic doctrines of Europe which were tainted with abolition. Right. And this is a prominent theme in this time. It's not just Fitzhugh's making this claim. But the whole, the, all the planners hated all the free planners, market capitalism. Yeah, yeah. This, and this comes out, this is a transatlantic conversation. So the anti-capitalists in Europe, and Fitzhugh's kind of intellectual mentor, he picks up on a guy, the, uh, the Scottish historian Thomas Carlyle, uh, who is a bit it's more a, of a, a well-known figure today. Well-known, but he was still sort of a crank. Yeah, very much a crank. Uh, but he wrote an essay in 1849, where he blamed the economic woes of the British Caribbean, which was kind of in a, a malaise or a depression, he blamed it on the abolition of slavery. And he said, uh, he, he, it's a horrible racist essay, but it was very famous this time. He says that uh, the abolition of slavery has made a partnership with what he called the dismal science, the dismal science of supply and demand. Free, mar free markets. Free market economics. So let's Let's go back a few decades because that claim was made that uh, we didn't declare our independence because we wanted to preserve liberty and yeah. because the British were taxing tea, all the other standard textbook reasons and I think real reasons, but yep. instead we want to preserve slavery and that Britain was somehow a threat in 1776 to slavery in the United States. Yeah. True or false? I think it's an absolutely absurd claim. Okay. And the evidence here... Look at the debates in British Parliament. See where the factions line up. There are pro-slavery and anti-slavery factions in British Parliament in 1776, and for several decades after. The anti-slavery guys, the abolitionists, are in the clear minority until at least about 1807 is when they finally get an upper hand and are able to turn some votes against slavery. But by 1776, the abolitionists are uh, clearly outside of the halls of power in Britain proper. The other fascinating thing, if you look at the abolitionists, who were they? There are people like Charles James Fox, who's uh, kind of the great liberal Whig leader of the time. 
Edmund Burke, we know today, is a, a thinker of a, of a sure. conservative philosopher, but he's also an anti-slavery guy. And you read their speeches, they're also generally on the pro-American independence or pro-colonist side of the debate. So it's kind of a head-scratcher here. Why are the, 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 the figures of British Parliament who spoke out against slavery and fought this battle against slavery later in their careers also pro-American in uh, the debate over the American Revolution. It doesn't line up with this thesis that Nicole Hannah-Jones and the 1619 Project's pushing. So the, the, Britain didn't actually get rid of slavery for another 50 years. No, it's... And uh, so this, this is an anachronism. This was it not is an going... absolute anachronism. And, and also you mentioned that the, 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 you know, the, while this was going on, it was thriving in the West Indies. Absolutely. And the planters of Jamaica, Barbados, and other Caribbean islands consider their institutions of slavery secure under the British crown. And they didn't think that, uh, that's why they didn't make cause with the colonists, because they wanted the Britain to protect their slave uh, holdings. In fact, they they considered it so secure that there were people that fought on the, the, the royalist side of the American Revolution that came over from Britain because they thought this was an opportunity to maybe claim some property or set up their, their homestead in South Carolina where they too could partake in plantation slavery if the British had won the war. One thing you write about that I was a little surprised, the question is, was slavery profitable? Right. And we're talking about markets, competition, price mechanisms. They had none of that. Yeah. Like the price, there's no price of labor. Was it was it profitable? I mean, was it, did it make sense? I mean, there's an argument among abolitionists that this thing was going to yeah. die under its own weight um, anyway. Yes, this is one of the great history uh, historical debates in economic history that's completely missed and omitted by the new history of capitalism. Is there empirical evidence that slavery was profitable? And the related question is slavery efficient? And I'd say it's a mixed bag. Uh, so my caveated answer, my my very careful answer to this question is that this is yes, where the academic in yeah, you comes this is the out academic <laughs> coming in. Uh, and, and this is built on on over half a century of empirical literature of, of, of heavy intense what they call cleometric research using stats to understand the past uh, so my answer to that is yes slavery is profitable but it's only profitable because it was basically a subsidized industry that had the full support of colonial governments of the British Empire of uh, agents of the state that took on the costs of making slavery operative. And so the planters controlled the government, then they voted themselves subsidies? That's entirely the case. Gee, it sounds like that's still going on. Different industries. Different industry, but... uh, We've got ethanol. (laughs) Right, right. So this is is like an evil version, a a much more evil version of the ethanol. So the the planters captured the government, voted themselves subsidies, and those subsidies made it work. That's exactly it. And you get things like the Fugitive Slave Act. You know, this is a... uh, a state-sponsored subsidy to basically hire enforcers that, that, uh, that track down escaped slaves. Uh, you have military installations that are put in place specifically because they know that's the place where the slave revolt is most likely. Uh, there are all sorts of expenditures on the post office, on censoring the mail, on uh, preventing abolitionist literature from being sent through the mail. Uh, so it's a, it's, it's a so huge... we had social media censorship even then? <laughs> Entirely. <laughs> Entirely. And it's coming out of the federal government. It's coming out of state governments. It's, and it's all aimed at propping up the industry of slavery. So, so 
but you know, c contrary to what uh, we might get to this one too, our friend Ibrahim right. Kinsey had to be an anti-racist, one of the leading proponents of critical race theory. Contrary to his view, there are a lot of Americans, a lot of white Americans, that around even the time of the De Declaration thought uh, slavery was a moral wrong, absolutely, that it had to be gotten rid of. That they didn't, and the Constitution was a product of a negotiation. Sure. You can argue whether that was, well, it was that it was of the time. How do those forces converge after, say, 1800 to end up in 1860 that the wagons were circled and, they aimed, and, and we were all aimed at getting rid of slavery? And yeah. how, was that pervasive? Was that a, a minority? Or where, where was the United States at yeah. the point of 1860? Well, the argument that I've made, uh, this is, again, back to the economics of it, is back to that regulatory capture that slavery had secured from the federal government. And we know this regulatory capture, not just from hindsight, Adam Smith, Adam Smith of the Wealth of Nations fame, pointed this out in the lecture that he gave in the 1760s. He said that uh, slavery has captured the government and basically bowed itself appropriations. What's happening in 1860 with the, the election of Abraham Lincoln is the South is seeing not a threat to slavery itself immediately, because Lincoln promises, he says, I'm not going to interfere with the institution where it already exists. Now, that changes over the course of the Civil War, but he promised coming into office, I said, you don't have to fear abolition from me. I simply don't want it to expand to the territories and expand abroad. That was his argument. But what the Southerners were so uh, incensed about was the loss of the subsidy. They thought that Lincoln was going to take away the funding to enforce the Fugitive Slave Act. They thought he was going to take away the funding for the military to put down revolts like John, John Brown's attempted rebellion. Uh, they thought that all of the gravy train was going away because now a northern government controlled the resources of, uh, of the United States, controlled where tax dollars were spent, and if they do that, they have to actually start paying for sustaining the slave system themselves. I knew you would be an interesting guest. <laughs> right. uh, you're watching The Bill Walton Show. I'm here with Phil Bagnus, economic historian extraordinaire, and we're talking about the fact that, that the biggest issue with, with the South was not necessarily um, just slavery per se, but, the, but the, all their subsidies were being taken away. Yeah. And maybe there's a cautionary tale for us all there. Right, right. One of my favorites, because I taught accounting to, I worked my way through business school teaching accounting, and I taught accounting to accounting majors. So I inflicted it on them five mornings a week, and so I knew a lot about accounting and its history. One of the claims made by one of these history of capitalism people um, is the double entry bookkeeping accounting emerged from plantation ledger books. Yeah. That's. <laughs> well, I mean, how wrong can you get? Yeah, there, there's, you want to talk about anachronism and projecting uh, absurdities on the, on the past. And this comes from the, it's the Matthew Desmond essay in the 1619 project. And keep in mind, this guy's a sociologist, he had no background in the study or economics of slavery. He works on 20th century race relations, and yet the New York Times tasks him to write the main article on economics. So one of the things you mentioned, Matthew is part of what you call the, 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 the this group's white guy problem, or right. white guy problem. All these historians are, are white. Right, right. It, it's, uh, they're mostly white male, which is, is quite ironic because Nicole Hannah-Jones, one of her main attacks on her critics is to point out that they're all white males, uh, even though that's not necessarily true. 
Uh, but she tries to, to blast even prominent historians like Gordon Wood and James McPherson. She says, oh, those are a bunch of old white guys, uh, so I don't have to pay attention to them. And I'm sitting here thinking, well, wait a minute, look at uh, your own contributors here. Aren't they susceptible to the same claim? But you've got this guy, Matthew Desmond, and back to the accounting thing, uh, double-entry accounting. You know, this is a practice that's invented uh, at least in the earliest modern origins in, in like, 14th century Italy. It was invented by an Italian in Florence. Exactly. It's the banking families of Florence. One of the reasons I love Florence, they invented yeah. accounting. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, he, yeah, for, for, for the economists, that's the reason to go to Florence. Not the uh, not the art, but because of the, the economic get history. To the, the, get back to my roots. Yeah, exactly. Well, the exactly. thing about uh, Matthew Desmond, he, he he's very aggressive about slavery, and its role in the economy. He says it's the primary driver of American economic growth in the 19th century. Yeah. And that slavery infused brutality into the American capitalist capitalism that, 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 that is pervasive today. Yeah. Okay, night, your, your story is from the 19th century. What was true? Well, this is quite a stretch of a claim that he's making on here, and it comes from a misreading of the evidence. It comes from repetition of like the Ed Baptist style claims about the reason that slavery uh, and cotton, the cotton industry grow, grew. So he's, he's misrepresenting evidence, and he's doing so in a very superficial way that's not well read in any of the literature outside of the new history of capitalism. So he's taking all their claims at face value. The, what, the, were the, what were the drivers of growth in the 19th century? Well, there's no single driver. That's the, that's the, the key thing, uh, the key lesson to take away from economic history is all of these single product explanations for economic growth, they fail under scrutiny. Uh, you know, there was a time when, when historians and even some economists believed that the railroad industry was the thing that brought America prosperity in the 19th century. They think that, well, uh, uh, the reason that America succeeded is because we built railroads. And railroads are certainly a contributor to that, but if you look into the evidence, uh, you know, economists operate with this, uh, uh, this principle called opportunity cost. You know, it's compared to the next best thing. That What's the alternative? And we ask the question, the counterfactual, what would happen if America had never built the railroad industry? Well, they, they probably still would have shipped goods. They would have used other means. They would have carried them on, on the waterways uh, or maybe built canals, more canals, which was the previous technology railroads supplanted. And when you start thinking on this, now, now the story's no longer it's just the railroads drove capitalism or drove economic wealth. It's railroads plus canals. Maybe it's railroads plus canals plus uh, uh, intercoastal shipping. Uh, it, it starts to multiply in the different causes here. And what it becomes a case of is that there's no single reducible product or unit or component of the economy in which everything can be attributed to. Well, you write about Deidre McCloskey. Yeah. And I love what she how she frames this. And she talks about all the institutional arrangements, you know, the rule of law, uh, the, our culture valued, you know, trade and, and actually business people were considered, you know, sort of the highest rank of Americans, mm -hmm. you know, Connecticut and King Arthur's court. Right. You know, there was, it was a very, <laughs> uh, very American thing to be involved in trade and building business. And also, uh, you know, the, what also we had, I guess in the 19th century, because of the telegraph, because of other kinds of things, knowledge got more widely disseminated, and, and innovation happened faster because of, uh, I guess, I guess the wireless, I guess the tele telegraph might have been pre-internet. I don't know. I, right, right. I don't know. But how did that? I mean, is that essentially all? Those That's the story. 
And, and, and you know, this brings back people like Fitzhugh that we mentioned earlier, the pro-slavery side. But it's not very colorful. I mean, oh, no, just no, to no, say we had rule of law and, uh, <laughs> you know, people behave like uh, good bourgeois citizens, That's but that's not colorful. Yeah. yeah, so it's a story of modernity, and it's a story of just people living their basic lives, people... Uh, uh, you know, finding the small innovations in life that they can uh, improve upon, making new discoveries. It's entrepreneurship. It's no grand heroic narrative. And this is what incenses the slave owners. It incenses people like Fitzhugh and, uh, and Carlyle and some of these theorists is they see slavery as being at odds with the intrusions, the corrupting intrusions of modernity. And by modernity, they mean free market capitalism. They mean uh, uh, business. They mean people uh, pursuing private enterprise. So, uh, you know, back to Fitzhugh's book, one of the other lines he says in there, he says, laissez-faire, that the doctrine of laissez-faire is at war with all kinds of slavery because it's intruding with the corruption of markets onto something that he saw was a superior system. Uh, a, a pre-capitalistic system, an almost feudal system that he was trying to uphold. And therefore, his prescription to sustaining slavery, and he says this in a quote, he says, we should toss all the books of Adam Smith and Jean-Baptiste Say and the free market economists into the fire, and that will preserve slavery. Well, he made common cause with the Marxists. Absolutely. So there's the oddity of it. Fitzhugh has a, a, a line in one of his books where he declares that slavery is the truest form of socialism to ever exist, and the problem with the socialists is they don't realize it yet. So the slaveholders were not only evil in their slaveholding, but they were stupid. (laughs) You know, that's one of the takeaways. (laughs) You know, I I, I argue that Fitzhugh, and I think there's a credible case here, uh, he discovers the doctrine that the Marxists all use, the doctrine of surplus value. This is the idea that the, uh, the capitalist, the owner of the factory, takes away what belongs to the worker and exploits it. the worker, basically. He uses the product of his labor to enrich himself. And Marx calls this surplus value, and it's the whole mechanism of why the Marxist system is supposed to work. Well, Fitzhugh discovers the same concept, discovers, I guess, invents the same concept almost a decade before Karl Marx does. At least. Yeah, at least. Yeah. Yeah, so it's there in his writings, and none of the Marxists want to talk about this because it's kind of a, an embarrassing association. But what Fitzhugh says uh, is, you know, rather than like this dictatorship of the proletariat that the Marxists want, is well, we just need a slave system. A slave system eliminates the middleman. It eliminates the capitalist. And instead, the slave system operates with a paternalistic slave owner, the master, who sustains and provides for his property, almost like a feudal lord. But he says that's true socialism because it's eliminated the market mechanism of, uh, of labor exploitation and wage slavery that, uh, that he sees as taking place in the capitalistic North. Yeah, one of the things, uh, you know, it seems to me that an ideal is just simply free people engaged in voluntary exchange. And when you have free people voluntarily exchanging yeah. with each other, you end up with great outcomes. That's <laughs> Turns out that people but actually it's, know but their it's, purpose. But it's not very, you know, there's no big label for it. I don't know what ism we've got for yeah. that, but uh, maybe we need to create one. Yeah. Uh, Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. You write about his role in this and the, whether he was interested in creating colonies um, for slaves once they became ex-slaves and whether that was a, uh, a political uh, uh, ruse, I think, what your name was, it was, uh, 
anyway, he was he was it was he was engaging in deceptive. He was he right. was saying, look, I don't worry about emancipation. We're not going to keep him here. We're going to put him someplace else. Right, right. So there there's a deep debate in the historical literature, and this is one of the areas that I've I've done most of my academic work on was what was the colonization policy of the United States government during the Civil War, and what was Lincoln's relation to this? Uh, so my first book, uh, it's co-authored book, it's uh, Colonization After Emancipation, Lincoln and the Movement for Black Resettlement. It came out in 2011, and was probably the first academic study, book-length academic study of this subject. Relied on uh, deep archival work. I think I uh, got material, myself my co-author got material off of three different continents, of documenting the plans that were afoot during the Civil War to voluntarily, but with subsidy, colonize the freed slaves abroad. Uh, so it's very much a part of the U.S. government's approach. It's kind of a retrograde, weird thing looking backward because it's uh, it seems completely unfeasible. Yet in, in the 19th century context, this is something that not only Abraham Lincoln believes in, uh, Thomas Jefferson had tossed around the idea. James Madison was uh, president of the American Colonization Society, responsible for basically setting up uh, Liberia uh, as a colony for ex-slaves. So this was a very prominent 19th century idea, and it's kind of on the moderate anti-slavery side. The problem is some historians have become intentionally embarrassed by what our government did in, uh, in this kind of paternalistic so-called solution to uh, the problem of slavery in the 19th century and have you know, reinvented uh, modern history to interpret that as, well, they weren't really serious about it. Maybe it was just a ruse. Maybe it was uh, a political ploy to sell the greater goal of emancipation. But the oddity here, this is the one area of the 1619 Project where I, I kind of give them some credit because even though it's not um, a perfect narrative in the way it's framed, even though Nicole Hannah-Jones in making this argument uh, has other goals in mind, she does at least have the history correct that well, uh, Lincoln but, was serious. But then we got to get in Lincoln's motive. Sure, though, and I, exactly. I, you're watching the Bill Walton Show, and I'm here talking with Phil Magnus, economic historian, and we're talking about Lincoln's views about uh, what to do after the slaves are, are emancipated and whether he was encouraging colonization out of... Uh, what his motives were, and and Phil, what you wrote, and I've, I'm I'm not I want to just get you answer this. Uh, Lincoln may have been wanting to do that simply because not because he wanted the slaves to move to another country, particularly, but he wanted to protect them from the slave owners, right. the the ex-slave owners that are likely to come back after them. Yeah. What 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 what's that? Is so, that so Lincoln is horrified by the racial violence he sees already playing out over the course of emancipation, uh, over the Civil War. And there there's several famous events of this. Uh, probably the most well known is the New York City draft riots in 1863, and this is when the Union Army starts drafting poor white laborers into its ranks to uh, to, to fight the war. So that's kind of a horrible policy in its own right. But rather than take their ire out on the federal government or, or the people that made the policy, the, uh, um, the laborers in New York City turned on the African-Americans of, uh, of the city, the free black community, and basically turned into a lynch mob. And as the riot breaks out, they are uh, just attacking random African-Americans on the street, burning their houses, uh, murdering them. Lincoln sees this. He's horrified by it. There's several other instances like this. So he is starting to really seriously think, you know, we, we've ended slavery. We've already issued the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, this is the new policy of the United States. 
but what's a, pro, a post-slavery society look like? And he looks out uh, across the horizon and I think correctly sees racial violence mostly perpetrated by white people against former slaves, against African Americans, uh, is going to be a serious, even endemic problem. He's basically predicting the rise of the Ku Klux Klan. And he says one of the solutions that uh, he wants to offer here is, and he kind of frames it as like a safety valve, is, well, uh, we need to give African Americans an opportunity to set out abroad to uh, make a life for themselves that's going to be free from this, uh, this political uh, oppression that he sees already taking form in, uh, in the southern states and even in some parts of the north where African Americans are attacked and blamed. Well, I like that explanation, but I, I, you give Nicole Hannah-Jones more credit than I do. I, I think she was just leveling, leveling a charge of racism. So uh, she was she was not she was not attributing those good motives to Lincoln. Right, right. She she's uh, so she's using the historical fact there that he was involved in the colonization movement as just another way to bludgeon or discredit. And I, and I think there there's there are serious interpretive problems with what she does there. Uh, the historical evidence. This is one of the places where it does align with. The account she's telling, maybe not the interpretation that she's telling. Of course, we're looking backward. Right. You know, we're, when you're Lincoln in 1864, 65, before he was assassinated, we really don't know what was in his mind. That, that's exactly it. That's, uh, I mean, he, he doesn't have the luxury of hindsight. He is acting in the moment. He's venturing into uncharted territory. Emancipation is, is now a thing. Emancipation, through his actions, has been achieved. And he doesn't know what the future is going to bring. He sees foreboding in racial violence. So he's trying, he's casting about looking for almost anything. So, so. we've achieved this really good thing. We've yeah. ended slavery. Now what on earth are we going to do? That's the, the great question. And we, we know his successors stumbled. They blew that. it. They blew it big time. That's Reconstruction exactly. was a catastrophe. Um, let's, let's, we've got just a couple minutes left. Let's, let's bring this forward to where we are with critical race theory. How yeah. does this all, does this all inform maybe what Ibram Kenzie's been writing right. now? By the way, I should put, he, he's sort of the leading, uh, don't buy this book. I, I bought it so I could use it as a prop, but you really don't need to read this book. You can count on Phil to tell you what's in it. Yeah. Well, it's it's more of the same. I mean, he has an, an entire chapter in there that's basically devoted to declaring capitalism as inherently racist. Okay, so this so is sticking right same, up. Same, same, same type stuff. of argument. And the idea here is to discredit institutions, to discredit uh, uh, things that are disliked by the far progressive left. And I'm not just talking about your, your, your typical center-left, Bill Clinton-style liberal. Uh, this is the far, far left. Anyway, people that tend to think of economics as anything to the right of Karl Marx is evil and capitalistic. <laughs> uh, and, and you see this in the literature. So critical race theory, it's a, um, it's a subfield of the academy. It emerged uh, probably over the last four decades or so, uh, mostly out of legal scholars. It builds on a broader kind of tradition that's called the critical theory. So there's critical race theory, uh, there's critical gender theory. There's there yeah, we, had, like, we had James, we had James, Le James Lindsay on talking about yeah. critical theory. Yeah, so it's it's a broad range of approaches, but the the whole idea here is uh, you know they're creating narratives to tear down what they see as power disparities in society and turn uh, tear down institutions that they think have uh, uh, 
incorporated the ism that they're, they're, they're going after. So racism, they think that racism is endemic to capitalism. And rather than analyze capitalism, rather than analyze human behavior, they see it as the goal of scholars to basically be political activists, to be agents of political change and upheaval. And you see this in the original text of, of critical race theory. So Kimberly Crenshaw is one of the figures that Kendi draws on uh, very heavily. She's the lady that invented uh, what we call intersectionality theory. So it's a, a key doctrine of uh, critical race theory. Uh, but she has her opening essays, when she frames this out, she says, you know, the, uh, the critical race theorist, the intersectionality theorist, is not just like an objective scholar interpreting uh, these events. They have to be an activist. They have to be an agent for social justice and social change. And I'm paraphrasing her here. And then, then you start probing, well, well, what is the activism that, that, that she wants? What's the social justice, social change she wants? And it's a litany of far-left progressive tropes. It's uh, we draw on an upheaval of capitalism, and we, we learn from the traditions of Karl Marx. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's you know, everything you'd expect from that end of the political spectrum. Well, what I, what I bring to this is, you know, I'm not a scholar particularly. I'm a Wall Street guy. I'm a CEO type. And when I look at this, I don't see anything more than just a demand for more for money and power. That's <laughs> I don't see any ideals beyond money and power. Yeah. So I read books like this, and I read some of the literature like. Crenshaw. Thank you. So I don't have. No, to. it's it's a okay. slog to get. Okay. Thrown. So, but is there what's the, is there a higher ideal that? Uh, so I mean, people I, are being demanded to get out of the way because they're yeah. racist. But if you just want money and power. That's, and that's what astounds me in this work. The first thing that hits you of this literature, yeah, it's full of, of factual errors. It's full of, of interpretations that are very ideological. But the number one problem I see with this literature, the thing that always like, hits you over the head when you're reading the book, is just how superficial and non-rigorous the scholarship is. Mm -hmm. It's a very banal approach to interpreting the past. And they, they always start with like a, um, a very simplistic aphorisms as well. Slavery was a repressive institution, and it definitely injected itself into other institutions of society. It definitely had a, uh, a, a legacy after it. I can agree with that. Uh, I mean, we just talked about how slave owners captured the government and appropriated all sorts of subsidies to themselves. And there are many, many other instances of this. There's New Deal programs that basically institutionalized redlining, housing discrimination. Uh, this runs throughout uh, the last two centuries of basically government malfeasance and, uh, and institutionalized discrimination. So they start with this basic observation, but then they kind of appropriate it. They claim it to them uh, as their own. They said that the only way we can interpret this observation is through this lens of critical race theory. So they start with a simple observation, and then they use that as a way to kind of uh, import through the back door all this heavy Marxian and left-wing ideology. And so, so it's like, okay, we recognize that slavery uh, has horrific institutional legacies that extend to today. Therefore, we must overturn capitalism. You're an economic historian. You're also a historian of ideas. How long does this run its course? How does this, where is this going? Right, right. Well, it's certainly a fashionable thing in the academy today. And beyond that, yeah. it's a requirement for a job. <laughs> and it, it's, it's, <laughs> and it's spilled over into the mainstream, but, but we see this in waves. You know, the academy is not the stable institution of a preserver of knowledge and a, um, a, a mechanism of discourse that it likes to present itself as. You know, it's not high-minded ideas in the ivory tower. 
It's a very politicized institution, and it goes through fads. It goes through fashionable theories. Uh, many of these theories from the past we now look back on in horror. So uh, I'll give you an example. The Academy in, say, like the 1920s was obsessed with eugenics, the idea that you can uh, uh, you know, manipulate heredity and certain unfit people. The progressives were. The progressives. And the progressives, are, they've always kind of been the dominant Planned person. Planned Parenthood. Yeah, it's Margaret Sanger's ideas behind some of the original abortion arguments are, well, African Americans are, are having too many babies for, with respect to other races, and, uh, and this is going to have uh, bad eugenic implications for society. And this is out in the open in, in some of the progressive literature. They've kind of buried it. They shoved it behind. Well, they won that argument that we've, we've murdered 50 million babies in the last... Uh... Right. Uh, they, well, they, they reinvent themselves and their motives. But this was a fashionable thing in the academy for decades, basically until the end of World War II. And it shaped policy. It shaped state and federal government. It shaped international policy. Uh, but the fad was there. So I, I consider it as a classic example of a bad idea from the academy that spilled over in horrific ways into society. Unfortunately, the academy still does that kind of thing. And I'm not saying that the critical race theory is the next eugenics, but I am saying it is an idea that's become a fad in academia for heavily political reasons, and fads tend to come in waves. Uh, right now, this fad is on the ascendance. One thing I point out about the academy, you can see this in the data, is it's uh, even though it's always kind of been on the political left, it has taken a very far sharp leftward turn in just the past 15 years. Mm -hmm. So the Academy from, say, like the 1950s to about 2000 was like a plurality on the political They're center-left. Uh, you say maybe uh, people on the left are about 45% of the profes uh, professors, and then moderates, conservatives, libertarians, they split the remainder. Yeah. That changed. Well, you say fad. You're, probably, you're too young for this, but did you ever hear of a hula hoop? Mm -hmm. They burst onto the scene in the yeah. '60s, and I hope this has the half-life of a hula hoop. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> it lasted a couple of years. Yeah. Well, Phil, this is fantastically interesting. Thanks for coming on. Well, thank we'll, you for having to be continued. We didn't explore all the things that we know we could explore. Uh, you've been watching the Bill Walton Show, and I've been here with uh, Phil Magnus, uh, economic historian extraordinaire, and we've been talking about the economics of slavery and the dynamics of, uh, of the racist argument, the racism arguments that have led to today's critical race theory. So I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, stay tuned for our next show, and uh, we'll see you soon. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.